You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. How many of you were here for week one? All right, welcome. And those of you that weren't, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. Glad, welcome back. Unless it's your first time, then just welcome. I'll tell you, welcome back next time. So, uh, well, I grew up, some of you know this if you've been around Calvary for a long time, but I, I grew up uh, in a suburb of Boston that's called Brockton, uh, Massachusetts, part of what's called the South Shore in, uh, in Boston. It's kind of a rough area of Boston. It's the home of two famous boxers, uh, Rocky Marciano and Marvelous Marvin Hagler, both uh, Brockton residents. And probably the two most famous people ever to come out of Brockton, which is probably the reason why there were so many fights in my neighborhood, is that the people that we revered were both boxers. And so um, now within the city of Brockton was my Cuban family. Now the thing that you have to understand is that those of you that have lived in South Florida for a long time or you came here from somewhere else, and there's a lot of things that happen in South Florida that Cuban people do, right? But it doesn't seem weird because, you know, like everybody here is Latin and everybody is just understands that this is just what you do. And it's not weird if everybody else is doing it. But when you're the only people, we were known as the Spanish people uh, on our block. So just to kind of give you an idea, well, uh, there, there's just, you know, there's just weird stuff that, that happens. Like, um, my, one of the things is it didn't matter what we were talking about, everything in Cuba was better. Everything in Cuba was better. And, and one time, I remember vividly sitting in, in my living room um, asking my parents that uh, when they were like, everything was better in Cuba. And I'm like, if Cuba was so great, like, why did you leave? And you, I only asked that question one time. And uh, because after I regained consciousness... I knew never to ask that question again. And, uh, but as a, you know, and then as a traditional Cuban household, all of our furniture was covered in plastic. And, uh, I, you know, because even our, I was, t my brother was at our house not that long ago, and he, we were talking about the furniture. My stepdad still has the furniture, by the way. And, uh, but even the lampshade had plastic, which has got to be some kind of fire hazard. But the weird thing is, I remember one time we took the, the plastic off the lampshade. It was like the lampshade had its own version of a farmer tan uh, on, anyway, it was very weird. And, um, but my parents were very particular about the furniture. And if you, you could sit down, and if you moved around too much, they just thought you were abusing the privilege. And so you're out, like sit on the floor, you're, we're done here. And, and, uh, so, and so anyway, th so the thing that would happen is, and I know this is going to sound like so old guy, so let me just tell you right off the bat. Um, we, in Boston, it only gets really hot for like, I would say three months, but it's really probably more like six to eight weeks that it's really hot. And so we didn't have air conditioning in our house. And so that's just not something that was typical in the 80s. It, it is now, but not in the 80s. And so um, over the summer, we would sit on the plastic furniture 
with shorts on, and I mean, it's like, I don't know, 8,000 degrees in our house, and we got this one fan, like those plastic fans, because Cubans don't believe in ceiling fans. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, and, and if you do have ceiling fans, then apparently you're not really Cuban. You know, you've, you've assimilated too much. And so anyway, but you would try, so we would have like these little, uh, like those little plastic, like $10 plastic fans, like strategically in the house. And we try to create like these wind tunnels, like none of that stuff worked. And, uh, but I'm, you would try to get up after sitting on that plastic furniture. I mean, it was the equivalent of like peeling a fruit roll up, you know, you were, you were getting up. And so, um, so now I tell you all of that because I still remember the first day I was allowed to stay home by myself. I was 11 years old. My mom was going to the store to buy groceries. My younger sister was about two at the time. She was taking my sister. This was like my first test of responsibility. She's like, do you want to stay home? Absolutely. So she gets in the car with my sister and leaves. I run upstairs to my room because in our uh, living room, not just where the furniture was, we had one of those tower, my stepdad had one of those tower uh, radio, uh, you know, like he had a record player and a receiver and a tape deck. And, you know, that's about as far as our technology went. And so I run upstairs and I grab my Van Halen 1984 album. I come downstairs, I crank the thing up, and I'm jumping on the furniture, playing air guitar, doing my best Eddie Van Halen impression. And as I'm pumping, you know, Panama through the speakers, I hear a slam behind me. My mom had forgotten something. And that's when things got ugly. And there's another song on that album that I experienced, a song called House of Pain. And, uh, and, and, and now, and, and once again, the problem was this, is that I did not know that she would be returning so soon. And had I known that she was returning, I would never have been messing around. I would have been expecting it and not goofing off. Now, the same thing is true for us because one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith is that Jesus is coming back. And that over and over and over, Jesus let us know that this is a reality to look for, to watch for, and to wait for. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says it this way. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Because one of the healthiest ideas that you can live with in your mind, and your heart as a Christian is the reality that Jesus could come back today. And living with that reality will impact how you live. It will impact how you speak. It'll impact how you act. It will impact what you prioritize and why. So we're starting this new series of teachings that we're calling the Beginner's Guide to the End of the World. And we're going to talk about Bible prophecy. And I am absolutely convinced that Bible prophecy is something that we should not be confused about or lacking in knowledge in because it's part of what fuels our faith. Now, one of the things that you might not be aware of, but uh, one quarter of the Bible is Bible prophecy, and that is a huge chunk of the Bible. And also, Bible prophecy is one of the things that makes uh, Christianity stand apart. And one of the reasons that we accept the Bible as God's word is because of prophecy that has been fulfilled. There's over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. More than half of them have already been fulfilled very literally. In uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, 
Um, Isaiah would say it this way, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Listen, no other religion or faith system has what we would call predictive prophecy like we have in the Bible. Now, there are other faiths might have occasional claims that uh, that they have, and, and it's like a passage that might kind of seem like maybe a prediction, but the documentation is always lacking. Biblical prophecy. The biblical prophets were specific. They predicted events that no one else could see. And that meant that the prophecy also had the ability, it, run, it ran the risk of being proven false. And so what I want to do is in this series is really build a foundation for you of understanding Bible prophecy in this series that will serve you for a lifetime. And so what I want to do in this uh, message in particular is really focus on one thing. Uh, I want to focus on one place, Israel and Jerusalem in particular. And here's why is because Israel is the key to understanding Bible prophecy. It's one of the ways that we can know if we are living in the last days or not. And if we're going to understand Bible prophecy, then we need to understand Israel's history, their present situation, and their future. So our story is going to begin in 70 AD. 70 AD is about a little over 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus. In 70 AD, uh, Israel is in the fourth year of a rebellion against Rome. Rome has gotten sick of this rebellion, and they've brought in this uh, kind of their version of SEAL Team 6. It was called the 10th Roman Legion. They marched into Jerusalem and put an end to this insurrection. They marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, much of the city, by the way, exactly the way Jesus said it would happen in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. And Jews began to scatter throughout the region and really throughout the known world at the time. And the, it marks what is called in Greek the diaspora, which means the scattering where Jews were scattered throughout the whole earth. Now, we fast forward a little bit to about 120 AD. 120 AD, the Roman emperor Hadrian gives the Jews permission to rebuild the temple. As they start rebuilding the temple, uh, a group of Samaritans, now Samaritans lived to the north of Israel, and they were half Jewish and then half something else because of intermarrying, and uh, they had kind of a beef with the Jewish people, and it was a real problem. We've talked about that at other times. But the Samaritans went to the Roman emperor and lied, saying the Jews were building the temple so they could revolt again, because that's what they've done, and that's where the revolt would always begin. And so because of that, the work stopped. Because the work stopped, that caused a real problem with the Jewish people. So about 12 years later, in 132 AD, there was another revolt that was led by a man named Simon Bar Kafka. Uh, there was a rabbi whose name was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the most revered Jewish rabbis in history. He declared that Simon Bar Kafka was the Messiah. He gathered thousands of people. There was a famed uh, 12th legion in the Roman army. Uh, they slayed the 12th legion, gathered thousands of people, and actually overthrew Rome uh, for about three years. And they actually minted coins. And, uh, and you, you can find it. In fact, you can see it up here up on the screen. Where on one side, it's a picture of the temple with this uh, star above it. And that's what... Um, 
uh, that's what they called uh, Simon Barkovka was the, this, this uh, morning star. And uh, so on, it has the temple, and then on this side it says the first year of our deliverance. Well, within 36 months, the Romans had killed Simon, his followers, and they had killed the Sanhedrin, which was, for lack of better uh, comparison, this was the Jewish Supreme Court. They labeled him as a false messiah, and, and Rome regained control. Hadrian was very upset. So after this, Hadrian, the emperor, goes to the Temple Mount, and they build a temple to the god Jupiter on the Temple Mount, made it illegal for any two Jews to be speaking publicly to one another. He changes the name of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina, which means the capital of Hadrian, and it would be named that until 324 AD when the name was changed back to Jerusalem. He also changed the name of Israel to Palestine. If you ever wonder where the name Palestine came from, it comes back to Hadrian in the fourth century. And the, the, the name Palestine is a derivative of the uh, word Philistine, which was uh, Israel's ancient enemy. It was, a, it was meant to be a slight on the Jewish people. And at this point, Israel ceases to exist completely. They are off the map. They are gone. Now, here's the thing that's amazing is that 26 years, 2,600 years before Israel reappears on the scene, a prophet named Ezekiel predicts what would happen and how God would regather his people. So we're going to actually look at uh, the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. And if you've ever read Ezekiel, you're like, wow, this is like the strangest book. And I, I, there's no argument here, but um, when you have the background, it makes a lot more sense. But we're going to start in uh, chapter 36 in verse 1, and here's what we read. He says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said to you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you may become the possession of the rest of the nations uh, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountain of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes and to the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. It, uh, Ezekiel is told to speak to the land of Israel because Israel's enemies have now declared that the land of Israel is theirs, no longer Israel's. And this is the challenge that Israel has faced since their rebirth in 1948. They became a nation on May 14th of 1948. The War of Independence in Israel began on May 15th of 1948 because these Arab nations uh, did not recognize, and once again, many of them still do not recognize Israel's uh, right to exist. Now, this is why this peace treaty that was signed about a week ago between Israel and the United Arab Emirates is such a powerful thing because they are acknowledging Israel's right to exist. And by the way, this is how you know the American media is garbage. 
uh, is because the Mi Middle Eastern countries are making peace and they don't even mention it. You know what they're talking about in their infinite wisdom? The post office, right? It's like, come on. Anyway, don't get me started. Uh, now, with the exception of Egypt, which made uh, peace with Israel in 1979 and Jordan, which made uh, peace with Israel in the early 1990s, and now uh, the United uh, Emirates, um, the rest of the Arab world doesn't believe that the Jewish people have a right to their land or the right to exist. And uh, although, now the cool thing is, is that this is what a lot of um, political folks are saying is that this peace accord is really going to be a, 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 like a series of dominoes that are going to fall. And so uh, many believe that at, at this point that there's, there's talks between Bahrain, Omar, and Saudi Arabia that are likely next to formalize diplomatic relations with the country of Israel. Now let me say this, and this is not meant to be a political statement, all right? And I feel like I need to say that. We don't do politics at Calvary, much to the chagrin of all the politicians who call here and want to talk to you. They want to come up and talk to you guys. And we're like, no, we don't do that. And then they get upset with me. And I'm okay with that because I want to spare you of that madness. Um, but even though we don't, listen, we don't make endorsements and all that. What we do is we talk about decisions and any administration good or bad, that does things that have biblical implications, all right, because I want you to be informed. There are basically two philosophies that America has taken when it comes to the Middle East, and uh, I'll, I'm going to give you both of them because I, I think it's an important lens to, to, to look through. The first, and this has been primarily the position that um, administrations in America have taken towards Israel, and that is that you put pressure on Israel to placate their enemies and give up land for peace or water access to the Sea of Galilee or something else for peace. And when Israel is attacked, which they are constantly, uh, they are told, you know, they're, they're told to let it go, not retaliate. And this approach seeks to placate countries like Iran by when they will publicly, you know, scold Israel. And that we saw that happen a few years ago when America publicly scolded Israel. Um, and then we give Iran tons of money which in turn they use to fund their nuclear ambitions and fund the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or as we can really call it, the terrorist arm of the uh, Iranian government. Now, you gotta understand, this is, this, is how this, this is how this kind of cycle has been working. The idea is undercut Israel. If we undercut Israel publicly, uh, Arabs will be more likely to make peace but it never seems to happen because every time we say, all right, we're going to do what you say, they just keep now adding more to what they want. And because they don't make peace because they know that America and Israel will have no choice but to then make more concessions and hoping that there's peace. And then when we make more concessions, they still don't make peace because they ask for even more concessions. Now, that has been the approach for really the last 60 years. Or you have approach number two, which I have really liked which is that you let the Middle East know that Israel has the right to exist, that they aren't going anywhere, and you're better off making peace with them, and here's why. Because when Israel defends itself, they don't lose. Have you noticed that? Israel doesn't lose. That Israel is this small country, but they are an economic force in the region, and you're better off making peace with them. 
And then we tell them, hey, you should remember, uh, you, you know, we tell these guys, you remember the Six-Day War when there was this five-country coalition that in the middle of the night attacked Israel, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon, all on June 5th, of 1967 attacked Israel. They had 500,000 troops, planes, tanks, the element of surprise. And somehow, over the course of a long weekend, Israel clobbered them into submission, took a whole bunch of land back, and it was like nobody wants to mess with them. And so, do you, and so now, the, the, the question is, do you want a Middle East where Iran is running the table with terror? Or do you want peace and economic stability through trade and mutual peace? Approach number one was the, um, was the exact approach of the Obama administration and previous administrations and pushing Israel to concede and it created a very strained relationship and you can go back and check all this out uh, between President Obama and uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, approach number two you got to let Israel do what they do. They're, they can defend themselves. That has been the approach of the Trump administration, which is one of the reasons why he moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Now, that is like, isn't that weird? Every country gets to decide what their capital is, except Israel, because they don't want to offend the sensibilities of Arab nations, because other Arab nations think that they have a right to Jerusalem. And, but this was him telling the Arab world that, Israel has a right to exist, and Jerusalem is Israel's capital. We are the only country in the world to have our embassy in Jerusalem. And if you come with us to Israel next year, we're going to do our best to go to the embassy and, uh, in, in Jerusalem. By the way, there is another country. Guatemala is following suit. So between us and Guatemala, Israel, don't worry. We've got your back. And so... Um, you know, that's the tipping point. And so now listen, you might not like the president, that's up to you, but there has never been a more pro-Israel president than our current president. Now that's not a political endorsement, we don't do that here, but we speak up on issues that matter to us as Christians. And that's the issue that Ezekiel brings up. He says, you have all the enemies of Israel saying, they have said the land belongs to us. And God is saying, no, he says, I want you to speak to the land, speak to the mountains, speak to the valleys, speak to the rivers. And then God is saying, I'm giving the land back to you. So he goes on in verse six, and here's what he says. He says, therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you will bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed I am for you, and I will return to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginning. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, uh, one of the things that I want to do for a second is really show you what we're dealing with here. And once again, I don't know what your uh, understanding of the Middle East is, but uh, here's a current picture of the Middle East. Now, I had to put the arrow so that you didn't miss where Israel was. Like, this is it. Israel makes up one-tenth 
of 1% of Arab land in the Middle East. Not 1%, not 10%. It's one-tenth of 1% of Arab land in the Middle East. And so, and yet Arab nations claim that the Palestinian refugee crisis is a global emergency, which is about 600,000 people, which by the way, could have been received by any of these nations without any problem and not affect them in any way. But maybe you've learned this about politicians, that politicians get based on exploiting a crisis more than solving a crisis. Have you noticed that? And so that's the issue here. And so to give you an idea, here's Israel compared to the size of the United States. All right? That's it. Uh, now, you say, well, what about a country like Great Britain? This is the uh, country of Israel compared to England. I mean, this is just not, um, not, not, not that big. Now, here is Israel compared to South Flor uh, Florida. It is roughly, it is slightly bigger than Dade Broward and Palm Beach County. And that, so that is what we're talking about. I mean, it's, it's basically the size of, you know, Delaware or it's a, it's a little bit smaller than New Jersey. And, um, and yet in the midst of hostility and being surrounded by its enemies, God has kept his promise to Israel, which is the only way to explain how this little country that's slightly bigger than South Florida is somehow the eighth most powerful military force in the world. Now, we're going to skip to verse 16 and uh, I want to share this with you. This is what's most important. Here, verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it in their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. By the way, that is a really nice way to put it. Uh, if you read it in Hebrew, it's a little more graphic. We're going to stick with English. Um, Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, that is the diaspora, and they were dispersed among the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. And when uh, they said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, uh, I am the Lord God when, you are ha when I am hallowed before you, in, before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you back to your own land. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, and here's really um, the point that I want to make and, and really drill down on this in the last few minutes that we have. And that is, not every generation could say that Jesus could come back today. And the reason is that there were certain Bible prophecies that needed to be fulfilled. Uh, if you were a believer uh, living 500 years ago, you couldn't say that Jesus could have come back. In fact, if you were a believer 100 years ago, you couldn't say that Jesus could come back today because Israel did not exist as a nation and Israel is the key to Bible prophecy. The book, in the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah says this, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who, uh, who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth 
in a moment. You see, all of Bible prophecy speaks of Israel existing as a nation, and that didn't happen until May, uh, May 14th of 1948 when Israel was given its independence. And after the horrors of World War II and Nazi Germany, the world community understood something, that this would have never happened had Israel had their own homeland. And so it fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy that, that God was going to establish them as a nation and begin to bring them back. And one of the things that's been amazing to see over the last 100 years is the Jewish people returning to the land of Israel. 100 years ago in 1920, there were 85,000 Jewish people living in what is today called Israel. Today, there are 6.2 million Jews living in Israel, more than anywhere else. Now, a few years ago, there were actually more Jews living in Brooklyn, New York, than there were living in Israel. And that, over the last few years, has tipped. And now there's more Jews living in Israel than anywhere else. In 1948, only 6% of Jews in the world were living in Israel. Today, 43% do. And this is amazing because no people group in the history of the world has ever gone more than three centuries without a homeland and been able to keep their national identity. And think about that. We read about a lot of different uh, nations. You know, we, uh, you know, I mean, have you ever met anyone who was in Assyrian? Right? No, because they lost their homeland and then they, they disappeared. You know, have you ever met a, a, a Hittite or a Canaanite or an Uptite or a flashlight? Right? I mean, you know, like, well, you know, but... You've never met them. Why? Because they didn't have a homeland, but you've probably met an Egyptian. Well, why have you met an Egyptian and not, and, and not others? Because the, Egypt has served as a homeland, and that is what has allowed them to have a national identity. Israel went 1,900 years without a homeland and yet kept their national identity. And here's the other thing that's important to note, and let me geek out for just a minute, because I know that I'm probably the only person in the world that finds this interesting, but... I'm the one talking, so just give me 30 seconds, all right? Um, the he 100 years ago, the Hebrew language was completely dead. The Hebrew language was spoken in synagogues, but no one used it in daily life until one man, literally one man revived the Hebrew language. His name was Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Uh, he is, uh, Ben Yehuda was from Lithuania, and he moved to Israel around the turn of the century, around 1900, when he got there, he said to his wife and 11 children, you want to talk about somebody who needed Disney Plus? Um, uh, he, had, he said to his wife and his 11 children, these are the last words you will ever hear me speak that are not in Hebrew. And for the rest of his life, he only spoke in Hebrew. And this guy is single-handedly responsible for reviving the Hebrew language. When he died in um, 1922, Everyone in Israel was speaking Hebrew. And in fact, if you read uh, about his life, here's what historians say about Eliezer ben Yehuda. They say before ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After ben Yehuda, they did. In fact, if you go to Israel with us, um, and the main street in Jerusalem is called ben Yehuda Street. And um, it, it reminds me of this passage in the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. It says, uh, for then I will restore to the people a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So what happens now? Jews are in, in the land. Jews are, Israel's in the land. Jews are returning to Israel. Israel is flourishing and prospering uh, in the land that's been given to them. If you're not aware of this, uh, Israel is one of the leading exporters of fruits and vegetables uh, in the world, certainly in, in Europe. And uh, they're the Silicon Valley of the Middle East with all their technological innovations. 
And what does this mean for the last days? See, because of something that Jesus said, he said when his disciples asked him, what is a sign of your return? And he said something that every Jewish person would have understood. Here's what he says in Matthew 24. He says, now learn the parable, learn the lesson of the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. Every Jewish person listening to Jesus knew what he was talking about because throughout the Bible, the symbol for Israel is the fig tree. And so when Jesus is saying, when you see the fig tree blossoming, when you see Israel back in their land, bearing fruit, prospering and growing, I'm coming back. And so are we living in the last days? Absolutely. And all we have to do is look to Israel to know. But that brings its share of problems too. The the prophet Zechariah, speaking of the last days, here's what he said. He says, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. And when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. This is another one of the signs of the end, that the nations of the world will act like drunk people over the city of Jerusalem. And that's what we see almost on a daily basis. Every country in the world gets to pick their own capital except Israel, which is why every other country, once again, except the United States and pretty soon Guatemala, uh, is going to have, every other country has their embassy in Tel Aviv instead of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a strategic location. Jerusalem has no natural resources, and yet this is what we read, that it is a cup of trembling for all nations, not just Middle Eastern nations. Because what happens in Israel, and Jerusalem in particular, affects the entire world. And something I want us to think about. Why is, after everything that the Jewish people have been through, why is anti-Semitism on the rise? For all the hatred that people have for Nazi Germany, why do you think, don't you think that Jews would garner at least a little bit of sympathy due to what they suffered? And and, and and yet they haven't in so many circles, and here's why, because it's not a practical issue, it's not a political issue, it's a spiritual issue. We have an enemy, Satan, who hates Israel. And throughout history, he has sought to destroy God's people. And here's the thing that's important, because some of us are experiencing problems, and and, and you know this, and some of us have got challenges, and we've done every practical thing that we know to do to make it better. And it leads us to believe this, that sometimes it's not a practical issue, It's a spiritual issue and something that only God can fix. So let's bring this this home and make this real practical. What does this mean? If all of this is true, what does this mean for us? I mean, like as Christians, like we're going to work tomorrow, we're schooled on a computer tomorrow, whatever. I mean, what does that mean for us? It's three things as we close. Here's the first one. And that is that I can trust God with my future. Listen, if God can move nations and cause a country to be regathered and reborn, then surely we can trust God with what's happening in our lives right now. Because even when things look out of control, things are happening according to God's ultimate plan. And the problem is sometimes we just don't see what God is doing. 
and we don't recognize what God is doing. And, and, and I, 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 you see this, especially if you're a parent, like when your kids are younger and, and they, they just, and I remember my daughter, Olivia, when she was like three or four, like she is, my, my daughter, Olivia, is the sweetest girl you were ever gonna meet. Um, but when she was three or four years old and she got hungry, God help you if you cross her. Um, because, I mean, she would just, and, and the thing is she would get hungry and forget all the English words that she knew. Uh, problem is she didn't speak any other languages. And so, um, and she couldn't tell you what she wanted to eat. I remember one time we were at the house and she was hungry. She was freaking out. And I'm like, what do you want? I will get you whatever you want, right? I mean, do you, do you want a helicopter and some cash and you headed to Cuba? What do you want? And she's like, I want circle meat. And I don't know if you know what circle meat is. I didn't know what circle meat is. And so I'm like, I mean, uh, do you like a circle? I mean, do you want like turkey? Or do you want like provolone cheese? And I mean, she's like, circle meat! And the, you know, and, and, and once again, she was, we were not flu, fluent in circle meat. And now it was like, it was turning into like a life or death version of charades. Um, and, and it turns out circle meat, by the way, is a burger. Who the heck would have figured that out? And uh, now, so one day um, we're headed to lunch after church. And this is like, uh, this is a few years ago, and, we're, and uh, all the kids are making suggestions as to uh, where we're going to go, and so we decide to go to uh, Pincho Factory. Have you ever been to Pincho Factory? You should go there. The place is totally legit, so I'll see you there after. Um, anyway, but um, so my daughter, Livy, gets very upset because she doesn't want to go. I don't want to go to Pincho. I want to go to this other place. Okay, where do you want to go? I want to go to the place where they have a sign that lights up over the door, like, oh, you've, you've narrowed that down to what, like 10,000 restaurants? And I'm like, well, and so, uh, and, and she, she didn't have a great attitude about it, and uh, my wife, um, who is the, um, the lead, I like to call her the lead parent, she's like Tom Brady, I'm the backup that comes off the bench only when someone has been injured. Um, and so, Anyway, she's like, are you paying for lunch? And she's like, no. I'm like, well, then you're, we're going to go, you, you know, you're going to go where we say. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, so that's, I like to, I'm like the hype man. I just kind of back up whatever she's doing. She's like, this is what we're doing. I'm like, yeah. And so anyway, that's, uh, yeah, is, you know, anyway, like 80% of my parenting. And so anyway, we find, she's very upset. We finally, we pull in the front, we get the, like, there's all these cars, we, the, Front spot pulls out. We pull into the front spot at Pincho. And she says, oh, this is the place I wanted to go. And I'm like, and she's like, look, there's the sign above the door. And I told my wife, and I'm like, this is why parents get old. This is, this is it. There's just only so much crazy that you can handle before you just start aging and fast forward. You're like aging in dog years, right? That's why all these celebrities that look young, I'll tell you why they look young. It ain't Botox. They don't have kids. Right, that's why they all look like they're 20 and they're like 90. And so, and here's the thing, right? And, and here's the point, is that sometimes God is taking us where we need to go, but we don't realize it because we lack the wisdom to see the road that we're on. Listen, that's why I love what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And the fact that God has a plan for the end of history proves that he can handle the bumps in the road that are happening in your life and in mine. Here's the second thing that I want you to know, 
and that is that I should reflect Jesus in this world. The reality that we are living in the last days and that the return of Jesus is nearer than ever should influence how we live and what we live for. In fact, it was one of the 12, the apostle John, who wrote this. He says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what, will, what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is as he really is, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. The reality of Jesus' return should motivate you and motivate me to live the kind of life that honors God and reflects who he is. This is why everything that you do to grow in your faith is influencing you to live the kind of life that God can bless, the kind of life that God dreams for you to have. And as we enter these last days, we need spiritually minded people now more than ever. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. And that is that I need to wake up to reality. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, most of us have done the three-hour drive from here to Orlando. And the thing that you'll find when you drive from here to Orlando is there's not a lot of signs for Disney when you leave Broward County. In fact, there's not really any signs for the first hour. You get halfway, you get through something that's called Yeehaw Junction, which no one really knows what that is. We just accept that it exists. And so, but as you get closer to Orlando and closer to the parks, closer to the kingdom, you know what you find? Is that the number of signs increase in frequency and intensity. And the closer that you get, I mean, and then it's like every other sign is, is there, and they just keep getting bigger and more intense to tell you what's coming. And listen, the same thing is true with the return of Jesus. The closer that we get, the more the signs of his coming increase in frequency and intensity. And my friends, and Israel is just one sign. And as we move through this series, you know what we're going to find? That there are a whole bunch of other signs that are showing us that we are living at the end of history and are about to see the moment that every believer has been waiting for, the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you and we wanna pray as Christians have prayed for 2,000 years, the prayer of Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And God, we pray for your return, we pray for your rule and reign on this earth where everything that's wrong is gonna be made right. And until then, God, Help us to do what is right, to do what we're called to do until we see you face to face. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.